And so I'm going to be telling you and showing you what the Catholic Church teaches on one specific topic, namely the Eucharist. Um, if you can read the little red script down there, anybody know what that means? Anybody, any Latin students in the room? Hoc est corpus meum. Anybody heard it before? No, there is one that says Rome is spoken, that settles it. Hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. The Eucharist is the Roman Catholic teaching on communion. And it's nothing like what you think of when we talk about communion or the Lord's table. When you look at Catholic sources on the Eucharist, you find things like the Catholic Catechism. The Catholic Catechism says the Eucharist is the source and the summit of the Christian life. All of the Christian life flows from the Eucharist. The Catholic Catechism, in brief, the Eucharist is the sum and the summary of our faith. That is to say that in this sacrament is the pinnacle of the Christian life. Attending, participating in, partaking of, this is the pinnacle of what your Christian life should be. Dr. Ludwig Ott, by the way, I'm going to be citing a whole bunch of Roman Catholic sources this morning. And these are sources that are trusted. They all have what is known as the imprimatur of the Catholic Church. That is, a bishop has gone over and reviewed them and given them a stamp of approval. The councils that I'm going to be citing, I'll cite the Council of Trent, Vatican I, Vatican II. Those are authoritative councils. According to the Catholic Church, they are infallible, which means those councils cannot make a mistake, and everything they say is perfect and without error. And because it is without error, according to Roman Catholic theology, it cannot be altered or changed later. Dr. Ludwig Ott, who is a systematic theologian, or was, he said this, The Eucharist is that sacrament in which Christ, under the forms of bread and wine, is truly present with his body and blood in order to offer himself in an unbloody manner to the Heavenly Father and to give himself to the faithful as nourishment for their souls. Throughout this class, I'm going to explain what he means when he says that. But right off the bat, notice it is Christ under the forms of bread and wine. And Christ is truly present in the form of bread and wine. And he is in bread and wine so that he can offer himself in an unbloody manner as a sacrifice. Just file that away. We'll be back. A couple of pictures for you. Here's Pope Francis. This is part of the, the sacrament. When he announces the words of consecration, he lifts the bread up so everybody can see it. Traditionally, there's an altar server off to the side with some bells, and he rings the bells three times to tell people that is now Jesus. Uh, the bells were actually put in place during the medieval period, because the Mass was done in Latin, and the population couldn't understand Latin. So the only way that people knew that it became Jesus was when the bells rang. Here's some priests. They're also participating in the Eucharist. And once the consecration is completed, and they finish this little ceremony, they then distribute the Eucharist to the faithful. Uh, if you're wondering why He's putting it in her mouth that is not just because she's holding a baby. There is a belief that if you drop the bread, you defile Jesus. And so you can't drop the bread on the floor because that's defiling Jesus. 
And you don't want to put Jesus in the hands of one of the laity, which is what the Catholic Church calls the members of their church, because they are filthy little sinners, and you don't want to defile Jesus that way either, and you wouldn't want some bread or some Jesus to get stuck in between their fingers. So it's better to put it in their mouth directly just to make sure we protect Jesus. And I'm not being sarcastic there. Just wait. Okay, so where did they come up with this? Where did they say that this was implemented by Jesus? They point to Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 19, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. They say that this verse right here, and the phrase, Do this in remembrance of me, is where Jesus instituted the Eucharist and ordained the Catholic priesthood. From those little words, do this in remembrance of me, they get the entire Catholic priesthood and everything I'm going to teach you about the Eucharist this morning, the Catholic Catechism. Jesus includes the apostles in his own offering and bids them perpetuate it. By doing so, the Lord institutes his apostles as priests of the new covenant. Notice he says, here they say that the apostles are included in the offering of Jesus. That would be the offering of Jesus on the cross. And in this little phrase, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus, according to the Catholic Church, is telling them, you are to take my offering and perpetuate it and to continue making the offering. This is where they say the Catholic priesthood comes from. This one little verse. The Lord institutes his apostles as priests of the new covenant. Now, I don't need to, I don't need to tell you this. Does Luke twenty two nineteen 19 say anything about priests? Council of Trent. This was the authoritative session in the 1500s that responded to the Reformers. The Reformers came out and exposed a lot of what the Catholic Church was teaching. And the Catholic Church responded by digging its heels in and going and having this council and just dogmatizing everything. And then condemning anyone who disagreed. The Council of Trent. If anyone shall say that by these words, do this in remembrance of me, Christ did not institute the apostles' priest, or did not ordain that they and other priests should offer his body and blood, let him be anathema. Let him be anathema is another way of saying let him be cursed. Let him be damned. They cursed everyone who disagreed with their teaching on the priesthood. Okay. Well, let's ask this question. Obviously, Luke twenty-two nineteen does not speak of the priesthood. So let's go through Scripture and see if we can find some place where the Catholic priesthood is mentioned, or a Christian priesthood is mentioned. And when I think about Scripture and I think about where priesthoods are mentioned, there's a couple of priesthoods mentioned in Scripture. There's the Levitical priesthood, the priests of the pagan gods like Molech, there's the priesthood of Melchizedek, the priesthood of all believers, and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Can you guys think of any other priesthoods in the Bible? That's the only ones I could think of. So are any of these the Catholic priesthood? Well, I think we can knock some of these off the list. Uh, I think we can knock off the priests of the pagan gods, because I'm pretty sure they would not affirm themselves as the priests of Molech. Priest Molech sacrificed children on, on an altar through fire. I don't think the Catholic priesthood fits that definition. Um, we can also eliminate the priesthood of Melchizedek. Why can we eliminate that? Anybody know anything about that priesthood? 
It was one person. What was unique about that one person? Yeah. It's an eternal priesthood. It is eternal. So this can't refer to the Catholic priesthood because they'll say they, they'll have this priesthood until Christ returns. So that can't be them. The priesthood of all believers. We'll see you in a minute. It can't be the priesthood of all believers because they say only their priests can perform this ritual. So it can't be the priesthood of all believers. And I don't think even the Catholic Church is heretical enough to say they are the priesthood of Jesus himself, although they come close. I'll show you in a minute. So I'm going to knock that one off the list. So the only one that could potentially describe the Roman Catholic priesthood is the Levitical priesthood. Well, let's look at the Levitical priesthood just for a moment. In order to be a member of the Levitical priesthood, what did you have to be? Yeah, you had to be a part of the tribe of the Levi. Um, anyone in here part of that tribe? Okay, can you find someone who's a part of that tribe today? Why, why can you not find someone in that tribe today? All the records were destroyed in 70 AD. When the children of Israel came back from their exile and they get back to the promised land, they wanted to reinstitute the sacrifices, and so they went around looking for people who are part of the Levites. And they had some people who came and said, hey, I'm part of that tribe, I want to be a priest. Ezra 2, verse 62, these searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. If you were not a part of the correct tribe and you could not prove it through your ancestral records, you were excluded from the priesthood. Can any of the Catholic priests today say they are part of that tribe? Nope. Okay, well, the Old Testament's not their friend on this one. What does the New Testament have to say about a priesthood? About the Levitical priesthood. Well, first, the Levitical priesthood offered sacrifices for themselves. When the priest went in to offer sacrifices for the people, he had to first offer sacrifice for himself. Hebrews 7, verse 27, who does not need daily, speaking of Jesus, like those high priests who offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. If you wanted to make an offering to God, you had to be pure yourself. In the sac you would offer sacrifice for yourself first and then do that for the people. Does the Catholic priest offer sacrifice for himself first? No. Okay. Levitical priesthood offers someone else's blood. That is, they offer the blood of a goat or a ram or a bull. Hebrews 9.25, as, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own, kind of fits the Catholic Church. We'll come back to that. This one is a little bit of a problem for the Catholic priesthood, though. The political priests offered sacrifices that could not purify. They couldn't take away sin. All of those sacrifices merely pointed to the one true sacrifice that Christ would make. Hebrews 10, verse 11, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You cannot be purified by those sacrifices. And the repetition of those sacrifices proves that the offering is not sufficient, that it cannot save. The Levitical priesthood could not bring about perfection. They could not make you right with God. Hebrews 7, verse 11, Now if perfection was through Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, 
What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Here's his argument. If the Levitical priesthood could make you holy and make you right with God, why do you need Jesus to come and be your priest? Why do you need Jesus to come and offer a sacrifice in your place? The answer is you don't. If there was some sacrifice humans could offer to make themselves acceptable to God, the sacrifice of Christ is nullified. It's unnecessary. And it just becomes merely a good option. I don't think the Catholic Church wants to affirm that they are the Levitical priesthood. And of course, they won't affirm that the Levitical priesthood. So we have to ask, where in the New Testament do we have any evidence that there is a Christian priesthood? Answer? There is none. And I'm not the only one who thinks that. Richard Hansen wrote a book called The Christian Priesthood Examined. Richard Hansen is an Anglican. The Anglicans believe in the Christian priesthood. And when he went into the New Testament looking for evidence of the priesthood that he believes in, here's his conclusion. Does the New Testament recognize any individual minister as a Christian priest in virtue of his being a minister? The reader will not be surprised to find that this question must receive as answer an emphatic negative. No evidence that anyone in the Christian ministry was ever called a priest in the New Testament. Richard Hansen continues, There is no mention of Christian officials as priests, whatever. But of official Christian priests, we must honestly admit, there is in the New Testament not the faintest whisper. And Richard Hansen goes on to defend the Christian priesthood, not by pointing to what Scripture says, but by pointing to church history. And when you talk to Roman Catholics, I will tell you from personal experience, they would love for you to spend all of your time debating them about church history. Because you can go to the early church fathers and you can prove anything. They, they were all over the map. And they would love for you to argue with them all day long about church history. What they don't want you to do is pull out your Bible and say, thus says the Lord. Christianity does not need a priesthood of sinful men to offer sacrifices. The job of a priest is to offer a sacrifice. Christians do not need to offer sacrifices, but that is precisely what the Catholic priesthood does. They offer sacrifices in what they call the sacrifice of the Mass. They offer what is known as the sacrifice of the Mass. What is this? This is only something that the priest can do. You cannot offer this sacrifice. I cannot offer this sacrifice. Only an ordained priest of the Catholic Church can do this. Vatican II, which was the council that was held in the 1960s, says, though, says although all the faithful can baptize, the priest alone can complete the building up of the body in the Eucharistic sacrifice. Only a Catholic priest can perform this sacrifice. Now, in order to get to the sacrifice, we have to build some foundational stuff here. And in order to do that, we need to talk about an 18-letter word. Transubstantiation. That's our $10 word for the day. Transubstantiation. 
What is transubstantiation? The Council of Trent in the 1500s defined transubstantiation. Here's their definition. This holy synod doth now declare anew that by the consecration of the bread and of the wine, a conversion takes place of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood, which conversion is by the Holy Catholic Church conveniently and properly called transubstantiation. Now, I want to note here that transubstantiation says that the bread and wine change and it ceases to be bread and it ceases to be wine, and it becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. That is a new teaching. Even in their day, this teaching first shows up in church history around the 5th to 6th century. Sometime after the period of Chalcedon. That's not saying transubstantiation showed up at that point. That's just when this idea that the bread changes into Christ that idea showed up first time around the 6th century. Transubstantiation was developed in the 1100s by Thomas Aquinas. That's why they said it's new, because this is the first time in history anyone claimed that this was part of Christianity. Thomas Aquinas used Aristotelian philosophy to try to explain how it is bread can turn into Jesus. And in Aristotelian philosophy, it says that everything... Everything in the world, whether we're talking about a person or this pulpit or a piece of bread, everything has two constituent parts. One is the substance. The substance of bread is what makes it actually bread. And the other part of it is the accidents. Accidents are everything you can perceive with your senses. You can feel it. You can taste it. You can smell it. You can see it. Those are all accidents. Transubstantiation says that the substance of the bread changes. You can't see it, but you just got to believe it. It changes. The accidents, however, remain the same. So the bread still looks like bread. It tastes like bread. It smells like bread. It'll dissolve in water like bread. It'll do everything bread does, but it's not bread. Dr. Ludwig Ott, again, he's a systematic theologian. The change extends only to the substances of the bread and the wine, while the appearances or accidents remain behind. By the appearances, or species, is understood everything which is perceived by the senses, such as size, extent, weight, shape, color, taste, and smell. When the priest announces the words of consecration, the substance of the bread changes into Jesus, while the accidents of the bread stay the same. And when that happens, Jesus is now present, really and substantially, there. The Catholic Catechism, in the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ, is truly, really, and substantially contained. Jesus is now truly present in the bread. And some people say, well, yes, but the bread is still there. It's still just bread. No, 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 no. Can't do that. You can't do that. Council of Trent. This is the infallible council that cannot be revised. If anyone shall say that in the sacred and holy sacrament of the Eucharist, the substance of the bread and wine remains conjointly, that is together, 
with the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and shall deny the wonderful and singular conversion which the Catholic Church most aptly calls transubstantiation, let him be anathema. If you say that it's truly bread and Jesus is still there, anathematized. After consecration, it ceases to be bread. The substance is what makes it bread. And the substance has now changed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. All of him is contained. And they refer to this as the real presence. There's a book you might want to be, if you might be interested, it's called Mary, uh, Bloody Mary's Martyrs. It's about Queen Mary Tudor of England who murdered over 200 Protestants. J.C. Ryle says that the primary reason for their death, for burning them at the stake, was their denial of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. The Catholic Catechism, this presence is called real because it is presence in the fullest measure. That is to say, it is substantial presence by which Christ, God and man, makes himself holy and entirely present. He is holy and entirely present in every single one of those little pieces of bread. Now, the priest can consecrate two, one hundred, a thousand. 10,000 little pieces of bread? So is Jesus, if he consecrates 100 pieces of bread, is part of Jesus in one, part of Jesus in the other, part, is he divided up? No. If I take one of the consecrated hosts and I break it in half and I split it, do I now have two pieces of Jesus? Half of them over here, half of them over here? No. Catholic Catechism. Christ is present whole and entire in each of the species, and whole and entire in each of their parts, in such a way that the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ. That is to say, if I have one piece of bread that is supposed to be Jesus, and I break it in half, I now have two of Jesus' body. One here fully and completely, and one here fully and completely. Does that make any sense to anybody? But that is the official teaching of the Catholic Church. And if you break that piece of bread up over a million pieces, Jesus' body is fully, wholly present in a million places at once. His human body. But Scripture doesn't say anything about this, does it? In fact, Scripture says over and over again that Jesus' body is where? In heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. How can Jesus' body be in heaven if he's human? How can it be in heaven and be in a million little pieces of bread all around the world? As priests do this all around the world every single day. How is that possible? The only way that's possible is if you deny the humanity of Christ. And you say he is human, but he's not human like every other human, and his body is not the same as every other human body. By the way, if you guys have questions, please stop me. No. Because all the, all the apocryphal books for the Catholic Church are in the Old Testament. Uh, they'll use some of that to support things like purgatory, but they don't use it to support the Eucharist. Um, I think that's actually kind of wise on their part, because they don't, they don't hold purgatory out to be as big of a deal as it actually is. 
Uh, but if, if they had to lean on those books for this doctrine, this would, doctrine would be even harder to con- convince people to believe. Um, so no. They would not affirm that. But I mean, even when you talk about bread, if, if I have a piece of bread and I divide it in half, I don't have a full piece of bread here and a full piece of there. I have half the piece of bread, right? It's a denial of basic physicality to say I can divide something in half and it not be divided in half. I call it the linguistic gymnastics. Um, we had one over here and then one over here. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, I'm going to hold my answer to that question because I think the answer to that will be evident as I go through the rest of this. It'll be very obvious on whether or not this blasphemous uh, right here. One mediator between man. Yeah. Um, great question. I don't know that they deal with that. Um, they, I think they would say something to the effect of that's not talking about this, and they, they don't affirm that there's only one mediator. Mary is a mediator. Uh, the saints are mediators. Priests are mediators. The church is a mediator. Yeah, there's a lot of them. If you go online, I, the very first class I taught on this is on the issue of authority, and we talk about the role of tradition and Scripture in the Catholic Church. And what you will find is they hold tradition and Scripture equal to each other. And so if the Catholic Church says something that contradicts the Bible, then you need to change your interpretation of the Bible to meet what the Catholic Church says, because the Catholic Church is infallible, and it can't err and can't make a mistake. So, was there another question over here? Yes, sir. Well, I think in John 2, if you look at that, they actually know, they, they detect a change in the taste. And he says, this is the best wine, you've saved the best for last. Well, the Catholic Church only has provided a, 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 an infallible interpretation of, of just a handful of passages, and I don't know that they provided one on that one. So I don't, I would think that they would say that both of them changed in that, but I don't actually have an answer for you. Um, one more it was. But when we understand the nature of their sacrifice, you'll understand why they have to have the priesthood. And they don't... We take the, the rending of the veil of the temple as evidence that we have access, and our sin has been removed. They don't actually hold that position. I'll show you what I mean. But let's keep moving here. The Council of Trent did deal with this objection. When, when Protestants turn around and say, look, you can't divide Jesus up and have his body wholly present in a million different places, how does the Catholic Church respond to that? Council of Trent. That our Savior himself ever sitteth at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Nevertheless, so we affirm he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Nevertheless, he be in many other places sacramentally present unto us uh, in his own substance, which though he can scarcely express it in words, we yet can, by the understanding illuminated by the faith, suppose and ought most faithfully to believe to be possible unto God. So we just denied the humanity of Christ, and we can do that because, well, anything is possible to God. God can pull it off. This is why theology matters. This is why systematic theology matters. Because if you have a sound anthropology, a sound understanding of what the Bible says about man, you understand that man cannot divide his body into a million different places at once and be wholly present in all of them. This is a denial of his humanity. 
But this doctrine of transubstantiation is vital to Catholic teaching. And it's vital to the Eucharist. Christ has to be present, really present, in each drop of wine, in each piece of bread. Why? Because this is a sacrifice. The priest is performing a sacrifice. Council of Trent. In this divine sacrifice, which is performed in the Mass, the Mass is their Sunday morning service, that same Christ is contained and immolated in a bloodless manner who offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross. Now, there's a word there that some of you may not know because we don't use it very often. Immolated. Anybody know that word? Yeah, to be immolated comes from the idea of sacrificially killing. You immolate a goat or a bull. In this divine sacrifice, which is performed in the Mass, the same Christ is contained and sacrificially killed in a bloodless manner who once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross. A little bit more clear now? This is why I wasn't going to ask the question, answer the question on, is this blasphemous or not? Now, I, I want to point something out here. Christ is contained and immolated in a bloodless manner and offered himself in a bloody manner, who offered himself in a bloody manner on the cross. Notice they're talking about two separate offerings. One offering is done by the priests in a bloodless manner, and one offering was done on the cross, and that was bloody. Okay, I want to note two separate offerings, because the Catholic Church will say it's not two separate sacrifices. It's the same sacrifice made present perpetually. Again, linguistic gymnastics, I understand. Council of Trinigan, for the victim is one and the same. The same now offering by the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross, the manner alone of offering being different. I don't know about you, but that first little phrase, the victim, bothers me. Jesus wasn't a victim, he offered himself freely. But the same victim, the same person, is now offered by the priest. The priest offers Jesus to the Father as a sacrifice. Two different offerings. Notice the manner has changed, but here's the thing. You can't tell me you're offering it differently and then say it's not a different sacrifice. Nowhere in the Old Testament when you look at sacrifices is the sacrifice done here and then offered repeatedly. You, you had a goat, you immolated the goat, and you offered that goat one time. You didn't try to go back and take the offering that was consumed in the fire and try to offer it again. Not a symbol. Uh, Council of Trent. The Holy Synod teaches that this sacrifice is truly propitiatory, satisfies the wrath of God, and that by means thereof this is effected that we obtain mercy and find grace and convenient aid for the Lord appeased by the oblation thereof and granting the grace and gift of penitence forgives even heinous crimes and sins. It is through the offering of this priesthood when they offer Jesus as a sacrifice to the Father that the wrath of God is appeased. Council of Trent. If anyone shall say that in the Mass a true and proper sacrifice is not offered to God, or that to be offered is nothing else but that Christ is given to us to eat, let him be anathema. If you say this is not a sacrifice, if you say Christ is not present and he's not there, you are cursed. You are condemned. Council of Trent, canon number three. If anyone shall say that the sacrifice of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and of thanksgiving, or that it is a bare commemoration of the sacrifice offered on the cross, a symbol, but not a 
propitiatory sacrifice, or that it avails him only who receiveth, and that it not ought it ought not to be offered for the living and for the dead, for sins, punishments, satisfactions, and other necessities. Let him be anathema. If you say it's anything other than a propitiatory, real sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and the propitiation of God's wrath, you are cursed. In Vatican II, in the mystery of the Eucharistic sacrifice in which priests fulfill their greatest task, hold on, the work of our redemption is being constantly carried out. You got to keep people locked in the religion. And the priest works with Christ and continues on the work of redemption. And you are being redeemed through this priest. They help Jesus redeem you. Vatican II, the ministerial, ministerial priest, by the sacred power he enjoys, teaches and rules the priestly people acting in the person of Christ. He makes present the Eucharistic sacrifice and offers it to God in the name of all the people. This was the, this was the council from the 1960s. He acts as in the place of Christ. This was explained in one, probably one of the most shocking explanations you will ever hear of the sacrifice of the Mass. It was explained by a guy named Father John O'Brien in a book called The Faith of Millions. This book has the imprimatur of the Catholic Church, or I would not include it in this presentation. If it was just some guy way off on left field, I wouldn't even include it. But a bishop read this book and signed off on it. Father John O'Brien explains the sacrifice of the Mass. When the priest pronounces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power greater than that of monarchs and emperors. It is greater than that of the saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. When the priest speaks words, he brings Christ off the throne and he renders Christ on the altar. He's not done. He continues, Indeed, it is greater than that than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin was a human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as an eternal victim for the sins of man, not once, but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Do, do I need to answer the question, is this blasphemous? Do I need to answer that? But here's what I want to point out to you, and I, I have to keep moving here, so I'm going to run out of time. Here's what I want to point out to you. This is the religion that people tell us they are Christian just like we are. We should embrace them as Christian. Is this Christian to you? Of course not. So here's the question. If they're offering Jesus as a sacrifice for Catholics in the Mass, does it always work? Do you always get what you pay for? Because you can actually pay for a Mass, by the way. Well, Catholic Catechism. From the moment that a sacrament is celebrated in accordance with the intention of the church, the power of Christ and his Spirit acts in and through it, independent of the personal holiness of the minister. What they just said was, our priests can live as pedophiles and still offer Jesus as a sacrifice to the Father. Our priests can live immoral and corrupt lives all they want, and they can still offer a sacrifice to God. As long as 
they are doing it with the intention that the church has. As long as their intention is in accordance with the church, it's good. End of the paragraph. Nevertheless, the fruits of the sacraments also depend on the disposition of the one who receives them. That is to say, the effectiveness of the sacrament is dependent upon your intention. And if you don't have perfect intention, well, sorry, it may not work. Dr. Ludwig Ott, the sacrifice of the Mass affects remission of the temporal punishments for sin, which still remain after the forgiveness of the guilt of sins and of eternal punishment, not merely mediated immediately by the conferring of the grace of penance, but also immediately. Because the atonement of Jesus Christ is offered as a substitute for our works of atonement and for the sufferings of the poor souls, let me translate. The sacrifice of the Mass affects the remission of temporal punishments. Temporal punishments are punishments that happen here on earth. And what they're saying is you can be forgiven of eternal crime, your guilt can be removed, but these temporal punishments still remain. And you have to experience these punishments, and you can go to the Mass and have Jesus sacrifice for you to try to remove some of your temporal punishments. And it is effective, it is effective in proportion to your right disposition. So you, you commit a mortal sin, you go and tell a lie, you commit adultery, you go to confession, you confess your sin, and then you do penance, you do works of atonement. And that'll remove your eternal guilt, but your temporal punishments still remain, and you have to get those removed. And you do that by going to the Mass. Because the atonement of Jesus Christ is offered as a substitute for our works of atonement. You have to atone for yourself. And what you can't do, Jesus will do for you. Does it always work? Dr. Rott. The measurement of the punishments of sins remitted is proportional to the degree of perfection of their disposition. You get your sins remitted and your punishments removed to the degree that your intentions are perfect. In the case of the suffering souls, the satisfactory operation of the sacrifice of the Mass is applied by way of intercession, and they are in a state of grace and thus oppose no obstacle. Theologians generally teach that at least part of their punishments for sins is infallibly remitted. So you're going to get a little benefit here. We don't know how much. Which is why they have Masses every day. You can go to a Catholic church and have a Mass at 6 a.m. in the morning, and they recommend you do this as often as possible so you can get as much of this removed because, well, if you die with temporal punishments, you can die in the grace and the friendship of God and still be imperfectly purified. That is the Catholic Catechism. And then when that happens, you go to purgatory. Purgatory is a place where you burn in fire. Some Catholic sources say they are the same fire as the fire of hell. You burn in fire for a million, two million, three million years, to have these punishments burned off. Biblical response. I don't have a lot of time here because I'm running out of time. Uh, transubstantiation is not biblical. It's not scientific. If you'll open your Bibles, go over to Matthew 26. Remember what they said. The conversion of the substance is implicitly contained in the words of the institution by Christ. We're going to look at the words of institution by Christ and see if that flushes out. Matthew 26 Starting in verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. That's where, supposedly, the institution occurred. 
right here. Take, eat, this is my body. It is now his body. Now, I would have you note, Jesus is physically sitting next to them, and he is physically holding on to a piece of bread. And they would contend that Jesus is wholly present, sitting there holding a piece of bread, and he is wholly present in the piece of bread. This is not his glorified body. Let's keep going. Verse 27. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is now blood. Verse 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Which is poured out, that is referring to an offering of a sacrifice, to pour out, that participle there is a singular participle. It is poured out one time. It's not poured out a hundred times, or a million times, or a billion times. It's poured out one time. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. By the time you get to that verse, it should already be blood. And yet he, after announcing the words of consecration, he looks at it and says, it's the fruit of this vine, not the fruit of this vein, the fruit of the vine. It's grape juice. It's fermented grape juice. It's still wine. Nothing's changed. And he plans to drink it anew in the kingdom. Are they saying that when the kingdom comes and Jesus Christ returns, he's going to sacrifice himself again? Of course not. Go over to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, you know this passage. But we're going to look at it real quick because, boy, I'm running out of time. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Guess what? The bread is now Jesus. It's no longer bread. Right there. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What's in the cup is now blood. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this, what? Bread. Bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the... Words of consecration have already been said. Shouldn't be bread anymore. Should be flesh and blood. And yet Paul continues to call it bread. Transubstantiation is completely unbiblical, not true. The sacrifice of Jesus was complete. It doesn't need to be offered over and over and over again. When you repeat a sacrifice, you do so because you say the sacrifice is insufficient. Hebrews 7, verse 27, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He doesn't need a priesthood. His offering was perfect. You repeat a sacrifice because it doesn't purify. Hebrews 7, verse 25, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession. Jesus is our high priest. 
And he sits at the throne of God and he intercedes and he presents the sacrifice he has already made that's already complete. And he points back to it and says, look, Father, they're pure. Not according to the Catholic Church. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The Catholic Eucharist denies that simple truth. According to the Catholic Church, redemption has not been obtained. Christ's sacrifice is not complete, and it's not sufficient. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The Catholic sacrifice in the Mass would make the blood of Christ no better than that of the blood of a goat or a bull. Hebrews 9. For Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often. As a high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own, otherwise he would have, have, to, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Work complete. Nothing left to do. Everything has been accomplished. And again, the Catholic Church would deny this very simple, straightforward text. Hebrews 10, verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. There's no way you can say, well, it's one sacrifice and many offerings. No, the Bible says it was one offering. Do believers need a human priest to intercede for us with the Father? No. Romans 8, verse 34, Who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus? Is he who died? Yes, rather he who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And in that passage, he says, Who can separate us from the love of God? And the whole basis of that claim is the intercession of Christ. Catholic priesthood, the Eucharist, is a denial of the efficacy of Christ's work on the cross and his work as our great high priest and, and interceder. I'm running out of time, so Hebrews 13, 15, Through him let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips and give thanks to his name. That's the only sacrifice you are called to make. A sacrifice of praise. In Romans 12, he says, Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. That is, offer your life as an act of worship to God. That is the only sacrifice you are called to make as a Christian. There's no Christian priesthood. There's no need to offer anything as a sacrifice. Christ has offered the sacrifice. Now, I would love to tell you that I'm done with the blasphemy, but there's something more we need to talk about here. Because you cannot understand the Eucharist until you understand the logical consequences of transubstantiation and why Luther hated it so much. And why... No Christian. By the way, when you go to a Mass and you partake of the Eucharist, the priest holds up the little piece of bread in front of you and says, the body of Christ. Former Catholics, what are you supposed to say when he says that? Amen. Absolutely true. You affirm everything they teach. The logical consequence of transubstantiation is Eucharistic adoration. 
Now, to understand this, we need to understand that they have distinctions in worship. Dulia, hyperdulia, and latria. Dulia and latria are two transliterations, Latin transliterations of Greek terms. Dulia comes from the Greek word doulos. Doulos means slave. When talking about a slave of God, it just refers to someone who serves God. Latria is a transliteration of the Greek word latreia. And when talking about someone who serves God, you know what it means? It just means service given to God. The two terms in Greek are synonyms. The distinction between dulia and latria is completely arbitrary. It's a distinction without a difference. But the Catholic Church would say dulia is the veneration given to saints, to angels, to relics, and to statues. This is not worship in their mind. Bowing before a statue and praying, offering flowers and incense to a statue is not worship, it's dulia. Obviously, we disagree. Hyperdulia is the veneration given to Mary. This is elevated veneration. If you want to understand that, listen to the class on Mary. But Latria is, in fact, the worship due only to God. Council of Trent, 13th session. Chapter 4 describes transubstantiation. Chapter 5 begins this way. There is, therefore, no room left for doubting that all the faithful of Christ exhibit in veneration the worship of Latria, which is due to the true God to this most holy sacrament. You are to worship the Eucharist as God. And in fact, this picture here, in the center of that is a consecrated host, and it is placed there so that people can worship it. And they encourage you to worship it, and you are to worship it as God. Dr. Ludwig Ott, if you say, well, no, Frank, they're telling you to worship Jesus, not the bread. Hang on a second, Dr. Ludwig Ott. It follows from the wholeness and permanence of the real presence that the absolute worship of adoration is due to Christ present in the Eucharist, the total object of worship. You, you are worshiping is Christ under the sacramental species. The latter are co-objects of worship. By that, he means the bread and the wine are co-objects of worship. As they are connected with Christ in the unity of the sacrament, the Council of Trent rejected the reproach of adoration of bread and wine and idolatry. The latter are co-objects in worship. You worship Jesus and the bread and wine. Council of Trent. If anyone shall say that in the holy sacrament of the Eucharist, Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is not to be adored with even the worship of external latria, or is not to be proposed publicly to the people to be worshipped, and that the worshippers therefore are idolaters, let them be anathema. And in fact, you'll see this, they proceed through processions in the streets, holding up the Eucharist so that people can worship it. That's the whole point of the procession. The Roman Missal is the book that teaches what happens in the Catholic Mass and what people are supposed to do and why they're supposed to do it. The Roman Missal, when receiving Holy Communion, the communicant, the person receiving it, bows his head before the sacrament as a gesture of reverence and receives the body of the Lord from the minister. When you go into a Catholic church, you'll see people bowing towards the altar. That is an act of adoration and worship to a consecrated host. That is a form of worshiping the Eucharist. If you go to a Catholic church, please don't participate in that. Here's a picture of a priest. He's bowing before a Eucharist. 
Oh, and by the way, uh, good news, if you would like to participate in the Eucharistic Adoration, not saying that any of you would, but if you would like to, you don't have to go to Catholic Church to actually do it. You can just go online. They live stream it. That's an actual string, screenshot. That is a live stream that looks at a consecrated host just sitting there. And when I took the screenshot, 176 people were engaging in, well, 175, because I was one of the 176. 175 of them were engaging in Eucharistic adoration. They were worshiping this piece of bread through a live stream. I was not engaging. That's why I had to correct myself, because I worship the true Jesus. Biblical response, this is real quick. This is nothing more than idolatry. Saying, well, if we're worshiping Jesus in the form of bread and wine is the same thing that the children of Israel did in the wilderness. What did they do in the wilderness? He took from their hand and fashioned it with, took from their hand gold and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molded calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They didn't make a new God. That was their depiction of the one true God. And they bowed down and they worshiped a false image of God. Same thing the Catholic Church does every single Sunday. This is not Christian, folks. Please, when you see a family member or a friend who's Catholic, please don't go to them and say, oh, we're Christians, we're all the same. No, we're not. We believe in a Jesus that actually paid for sin. We believe in a Jesus who, whose sacrifice was sufficient and able to redeem forever those who are sanctified. They do not. All right, I'm over time. Let me pray and we'll be done. Father, we... We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word because uh, it is a light to our feet. It help us, helps us to see the truth, to discern the truth, to know the truth, and we can uh, use your word to spot error and falsehood. And when Roman Catholicism is compared to your perfect revelation, it is exposed as being a false religion. And Father, we don't hate Catholics. We don't want evil upon them or wish evil or pray for evil for them. We do pray that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Christ, who is able to save them forever. We ask that you would help us as we learn about apologetics in the weeks and months to come to be better defenders of the faith, that we would evangelize our Roman Catholic friends and family members, that we would give them the gospel, that we would pray for their souls and their eternal salvation, and that you would be pleased to glorify yourself and bring them to yourself. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.